Will you Who shut is your, up, man? Listen, in, China in, ate your lunch, Joe. You're the, the worst way, you president voice. America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Me, I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to make hey, sure. Joe, you're the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, not first in your class. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument, episode nine. Uh, very shortly, I am going to be talking to uh, Scottish uh, libertarian Anthony Samaroff. Uh, we are going to be continuing a friendly debate uh, that we uh, started a while ago on a uh, different platform uh, when we had uh, a discussion about capitalism and exploitation. So I think we're going to get into some related issues here. After that, I am going to be uh, interviewing uh, Crystal Ball um, from uh, Rising, uh, and that is pre-recorded, uh, but uh, uh, we'll play that for you. Uh, and then, because David Griscom could not be here today for his usual Outlaws and Revolutionary segment, uh, instead we're getting Cole James Cash, uh, who is the uh, musician who generously provided the intro music for this show. Uh, and we are going to be talking about his most political album, which is 2016. So a little genre switch there, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, the sound you just heard, of course, uh, was uh, what I assume, and you know, granted, right, I'm an atheist, so I feel a little silly making confident predictions about what the afterlife will be like if I'm wrong about all of that. Uh, but I tend to assume uh, that uh, that is going to be the soundtrack for all eternity in hell, uh, if hell exists. Um, meanwhile, though, uh, I want to play you a, a few minutes of a different debate about uh, the same subject, one that I had on Friday night uh, on the Modern Day Debate platform uh, with a right-wing uh, YouTube person who calls himself uh, Mr. Reagan, um, who uh, some people might remember the previous debate that I had with him uh, about uh, systemic racism in the United States. Uh, this one was about the election. The way that it was originally pitched uh, was that it was going to be about whether Trump or Biden was better for the future of the country. Uh, for reasons I'm going to get into in a minute, I asked for that to be changed. I was, I was happy to argue with him about the election, uh, but not in a... Um, a way that put together Biden and future in any sort of optimistic way. Uh, so I am just going to show you a few minutes of that right now. I will say uh, that trying to be detached about this as much as you can about your own uh, performance. Uh, I don't think that uh, Mr. Reagan, who uh, silly name notwithstanding, uh, man has a quarter of a million YouTube subscribers, so I figure even if only a very small percentage of them uh, constitute fertile soil for planting seeds of doubt, it's still worth scattering some of those seeds. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think that in the first debate about racism, I think he did pretty badly. I think as far as I can give my detached professional opinion here, uh, I don't think he, what, you know, if we're going to play this game one, uh, the one about the election, I think he did better uh, because he had all the sort of Trumpist talking points set and ready to go. He wasn't just trying to decide on the fly uh, how to spin 
studies about, you know, um, the callback rates for black and white job applicants or um, other results that I was bringing up in the racism debate uh, that are a very, very tough fit with his narrative. Uh, but I think that the place that he did worse uh, was when I tried to redirect it uh, to the area that I've tried to laser focus in on. Uh, we, of course, inevitably spent a lot of it arguing about COVID, but the place, uh, and in fact, you can hear in this part, right, you know, the moderator's gotten a little sick of all the COVID talk, but the place that, other than that, I tried to laser focus in on is this question of the Trump administration's war on organized labor, what I was interviewing Paul Prescott about the other week. So here is just a few minutes about that. Yeah, to the left that, side. I didn't understand the second half, but I like the first side. half. <laughs> well, I think regard, with regard to the, the media and its biases, I, I said my piece, and then I didn't quite understand where it went after that. Next up, last question we have here. Brian F., thanks for your question, said, overall, do you guys see the left or right trying to take away the freedoms from U.S. citizens, and why? Ben? Uh, well, I think that uh, depending on, on which freedom uh, that we're talking about, I think that some of our most important rights are rights in the workplace, uh, which is where we, uh, we spend uh, half of our waking hours. Uh, and I spent a lot of my opening statement. You are so old school socialist. Through, it's going through a litany of ways in which uh, the Trump administration uh, has undermined the rights and protections uh, of uh, of working people. Give me I an example. Oh, uh, really? Okay. I, I, okay. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, we can look at, uh, for example, the uh, the COVID era. Sorry, uh, NLRB rulings uh, where um, where it's uh, Trump's NLRB has ruled that employers. Uh, are not obligated to bargain over paid sick leave and hazard pay. Uh, this is in places that are already union shops. Uh, employers are also uh, free from having to bargain uh, over a um, over a uh, uh, temporary closure. And most disturbingly, uh, the Trump-appointed board uh, has uh, declared that speaking out against your company's COVID safety procedures is not protected speech. In other words, you can be fired for raising concerns during a deadly pandemic. This is in addition to what I mentioned earlier about using COVID as a pretext uh, to stop uh, elections to certify uh, to certify new unions. This is in addition to rulings from Trump's NLRB that, for example, uh, when you have public spaces uh, that are still part of an employer's property, like the area outside of a grocery store where you might see the Salvation Army, uh, in the past, uh, unions had to be allowed to use those public areas that were open to other groups in order to give workers information about, for example, a union they're trying to organize. Uh, that's no longer the case. Another example would be a Trump executive order about uh, about federal employees, uh, you know, probably you know, making it harder uh, for shop stewards to file grievances. So yeah, there's a long list of these things. Also, if we're not, if we're going to look outside of the workplace, already mentioned Julian Assange. Where I was very happy that you know that Chris agreed that that is indeed uh, very bad. Uh, what's uh, what's happened there? Uh, the I'm Obama, not sure Trump is actually uh, you know aggressively well, the, aggressively pursuing that. That was an Obama situation. Well, the Obama administration actually made the decision not. I mean, they did tons of things in this area that I strongly disagree with. No question about that. 
I think I think in a lot of ways was very very bad on the national security civil liberty stuff. But they did make the decision not to seek uh, extradition uh, of Assange uh, on these on these charges, which doing so dramatically undermines uh, freedom uh, freedom of the press. If you can if you can go after. Uh, a foreign journalist uh, for encouraging uh, the uh, the leaking of information that's classified within the United States that really really undermines our ability as Americans to find out bad stuff that our government is doing uh, that we might uh, that we uh, that we might want to look at. So I think that those are both areas uh, in which uh, in which the uh, the Trump administration uh, has uh, has really uh, undermined. Uh, our freedoms. I also think that the uh, that the encouragement of really heavy-handed uh, responses. I'm not talking about riots and looting here, uh, but to in the overwhelming majority of cases, peaceful protests, which has included lots of attacks on journalists. All right, so that should give you a flavor uh, of uh, of that discussion. Of course, uh, as I was talking to uh, to my opponent for a few minutes uh, after uh, after the recording ended. Uh, he, uh, as he, uh, as he pointed out, uh, he was in a better position uh, starting out because he's arguing in favor of voting for a candidate who he actually, uh, bless his heart, likes uh, Donald Trump. Uh, whereas I was arguing in favor of making a grim strategic decision to vote for a candidate that I loathe, uh, Joe Biden. As obviously, I tried very hard to get. Um, uh, to get Bernie Sanders nominated instead. Uh, and I was thinking about this today because actually just a few minutes before I'd start recording uh, the episode, uh, I filled out my mail-in ballot uh, and, you know, I voted against, I uh, voted for the ballot measure to require searches for, uh, require warrants for certain kind of electronic searches for a couple of other obvious things like that for some uh, some union uh, endorsed candidates for Lansing Community College Board of Trustees, but also since I am voting in Michigan, uh, I voted for Joe Biden, a man who is dripping with the blood of Iraqis who died in shock and awe in 2003, uh, of teenagers in Pakistan who died during drone strikes at weddings and funerals, a man who spent decades acting more like a senator representing credit card companies than the senator from uh, the state of Delaware, uh, and who not for nothing is a candidate whose cognitive decline, I think, is an actual issue. Uh, so as I, uh, as I was doing that, right, I remember, um, I remember, right, it's an hour ago, I shouldn't talk about cognitive decline, but uh, uh, they had in the envelope this I voted by mail sticker. And all I could think is, oh my God, I can't imagine actually wearing this because it's one thing to vote for the candidate who I just described because you think, okay, it's a swing state. A small number of leftists uh, might theoretically make a difference. It's not out of the question. Uh, And this is strategically the move that you have to make uh, in order to prevent the most catastrophic consequences of the continuing COVID crisis and to stop Trump's appointees to the courts and to the National Labor Relations Board from stamping out what's left of organized labor in the United States. But are you really going to brag about it? It's like, you know, if you have a beloved family pet uh, who needs to be euthanized to stop their suffering, you might make that grim, awful trip to the vet. But are you really going to go around wearing an I killed my dog sticker 
So, um, like I said, that's a debate I am willing to have because it's important, uh, but it is, uh, it's not a particularly fun one. Uh, in fact, it's, it's one that, you know, as, as Matt Christman so often reminds us, uh, really indicates the extent to, uh, to which we live in hell world, uh, that you have to make those choices in the first place. Uh, so I take with great relief uh, today the fact that I get to um, take a break from arguing about uh, this uh, Sophie's Choice stuff about uh, which of uh, which of these monsters to uh, to vote for in the general election, uh, and I, uh, I get to spend a little bit of time today uh, arguing about uh, you know broader you know philosophical questions about how to think about capitalism and socialism and freedom and individual rights and all of that good stuff. Uh, with a uh, somebody who I profoundly disagree with, but uh, is a intelligent and thoughtful interlocutor. Uh, make sure you unmute yourself, Anthony. So uh, this is uh, Anthony Samaroff. Uh, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself for people who might not be familiar with you? Hi, Ben. It's a great honor to appear in your new show. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> Let's get that out of the way. Hello, everyone. Thank you for... Um, Bearing witness to our second conversation, it's good to be here in the lines then speaking to people who have disagreements with me. Um, I'm a libertarian writer. You can find a lot of my articles, including articles on Marx and Mises.org. I'm the author of a book called Universal Basic Income For and Against, which I've been told is a very even-handed book where I present the arguments in favor of the universal basic income and uh, as well as those against and also offer some alternatives from a libertarian perspective on ways that I think we could significantly increase living standards for people at the bottom of the economic ladder. All right. Thank you for that, Anthony. Um, I don't think too much about so, no, I was no, just you, saying I don't think just, too much about rich people. I was just saying I don't think too much about rich people. I mostly think about poor people. So, um, okay. Well, we can take that's that that's as that's as that's as good a, an entry point uh, as as any. Uh, so, since you you have indicated that you are willing to uh, to come back for uh, for repeat uh, repeat performances after today, so I'm I'm not too worried about you know what range of subjects that we we end up covering you know we can uh we can keep going in uh in future installments but uh but what you just said is as uh is as good an entry point uh as any right so you say that uh that you're you're not primarily when when you make this this libertarian uh critique of of statism of of doing um of of doing government redistribution uh, that uh, that you're not primarily concerned with with the welfare of of rich people. You're primarily concerned uh, with the welfare of poor people. But um, I mean, just just to start out, right? Like one obvious case in point, right? So I, I guess when when you say uh, you're a uh, you're a libertarian, uh, I take it that you don't just mean like what sometimes like a certain kind of Republican in the United States might say, Oh, I have some libertarian leanings yes. or whatever. Right. But like, you really mean uh, that if there is 
any legitimate role for, for the government. And actually, I'm, I'm not sure if you think there is or not, or if, or if you go all the way to anarcho-capitalism, but if there is a legitimate role for government, it would purely be preventing force and fraud. It's not, it's not to be in the business of doing things like providing healthcare and education. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that would be fair. Okay. So, uh, so for example, right, that means that where you live, uh, there is, uh, there's something called the national health service by, uh, by, by virtue of which everybody can, uh, can get their healthcare provided uh, for free uh, at, uh, at publicly owned hospitals. And, uh, and so I think an obvious response when you say that you're, you know, that you're mostly concerned with, you know, with poor people is, I don't imagine that most people in Scotland uh, would want to trade places with uh, with Americans who have to worry, for example, that sure. if they lose their job, they lose their health insurance. Uh, but uh, but I mean, I, I take it you would want to want to abolish the NHS. You don't think that's a legitimate government function? I, yeah, I would say ultimately I would abolish the NHS, but I don't think that would be a starting point. The first thing would be to completely deregulate the private provision of healthcare so that um, the kind of innovations that you would see in the fall in price could then influence the National Health Service and ultimately make it redundant. I mean, we could unpack this topic for hours, Ben, but it's not correct that everyone here has access to healthcare. We've um, got maybe approaching 5 million on waiting lists, and this is in a country of 70 million people. Uh, uh, old people are outright refused services. We have lots of rationing. Uh, people love the NHS until they're in it. Um, I'm not going to defend the American system. The American government spends more per head on health care than the UK government is, and you don't even have a national health service. Right, which, which certainly suggests um, to me that... Uh, uh, that trying to provide subsidies and do things like that, you know, have this patchwork system is a much less efficient use of money because, okay, well, if, because if in the UK right. you have 5 million people on various sorts of, uh, sorts of waiting lists in a country of 70 million, that means that, uh, that 65 million, right? You know, that's, so that's uh, about 93% of the population uh, is, is not, in that situation. Okay, but, most, uh, but so, we're talking so about the compare, people... Compare, with... compare that to the tens of millions of people uh, in, uh, in the United States, uh, making up a much bigger percentage of the population who don't have any sort of health insurance at all. So if they have something that might be nothing and might be cancer, then they have to think about things like, okay, do I want to go to the doctor? After all, there's a good chance that it's nothing, and I really can't afford to pay for that right now because I'll be paying for it out of pocket. And so presumably you, you don't want that to happen, right? So, so in your view, what's behind door number three, right? If, if you don't like the... Okay, the, that's yeah. a great um, question. Yeah, okay, so I think it's not fair to say 65 million people do have access to healthcare because if you want to look at the people who actually have conditions that might land them on a waiting list, the fact is that regularly... Hold on. Wait a right, second. Well, can, we do one, can, can we do one at a time? Can I just okay, develop okay, that but I'm, I'm really going to want to go back to that because I think that's a really interesting claim, but keep going. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, so, um, when routinely people are seen next day in the USA for things that people are put on a waiting list here. Again, I don't want to defend the United States medical system. That is a crony capitalist system. In many cases, people can't even open a hospital without going to um, 
to a board and justifying the need for the hospital. And some people on the board will be administrators from the hospital that exist in the same area and what have you. People are banned from buying insurance from states other than their own. There's tons of ways where the government pushes the price of healthcare through the roof in the United States. But um, what they... what the two systems have in common is third-party payers of some kind, which means that healthcare isn't subject to the discretion of the consumer, where they can say they can get a, a health, better healthcare at a better price. They don't have the option of taking their business elsewhere. So that does not create a upward and upward pressure in quality and downward pressure in price, as we see in other industries which are largely left to the free market. Um, so, so just to clarify the point, right, that, the, uh, that you're... So what's behind door number three? Well, that's... Okay. Well, I, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, right? So they have a... Uh, so, uh, so your objection is that we have insurance in the first place, so there's this third party uh, that's, that's in the picture. Uh, I'm sure coffee would, uh, would, would cost a lot more if you had coffee insurance and they were building sure. it. Sure, that's one example. Company. Right. All right. I'll buy that. Right. But uh, but I guess what I get a little confused by, and maybe you're about to say this in door number three, is how exactly you're going to avoid that, because, um, there, you know, people can pay for health insurance, health care out of pocket right now. Right. They don't choose. You know, they don't uh, they don't generally choose to do so if they can possibly help it uh, because the costs are so exorbitant. You could say, OK, the costs are only so exorbitant because. Um, most people uh, are um, uh, most people, you know, are are charging it to uh, to insurance rather than paying for it out of pocket. But since presumably you don't want to like ban insurance, right? That would go against libertarian principles. How do we go about getting into a situation where most people are not using health insurance? Sure. Mess me. So All right. Did you yeah. miss me? Uh, yes. Uh, my apologies, Anthony. I think this is something going on on my end, but uh, I was I was out for like a minute. I think the uh, so if we we're just going to pick up where we left off, uh, the um, I had I had just. The question is, how are we going to move? How are we going to? Okay, so people can have insurance for things that are um, unpredictable and things like that. That's yeah. fine. Um, I think, that broadly speaking, we don't really have, um, I think our systems have more in common than they have in part, which is that they're essentially systems of sick care, not health care. The only thing that's remunerated within these systems is the treatment of ill health. Everyone gets paid um, for treating sickness. And you've seen, you know, the, the excesses of the pharmaceutical industrial complex and what have you. They're protected by patents from the government, which I disagree with. Um, uh, the the move towards ensuring everything happens when um, during the war there was a ban on increasing wages. So um, a company, sorry, a companies started giving people health insurance and other perks and things like that. And health insurance is not taxed at the same time as other income. So employers are incentivized to give people benefits in the form of health insurance when actually they might actually like the money in their pocket to spend on whatever they want, want not being overinsured. This is an extremely complicated issue. But I would just say this, if you wanted a halfway house, I think the best thing to do 
would be to, for the government, rather than to um, say subsidize people with Medicare and Medicaid and encourage them to take out insurance, is just to put some money every month in a savings account for people that they could then use draw down from when they had some kind of medical emergency or, or to, to gain healthcare services. The reason for that is it would at least simulate a market in which there was truly open competition, which would put a downward pressure on price of services and an upward pressure on the quality of services. One, one, one problem with that uh, is that if you, uh, if you have a, uh, a health savings account, uh, that uh, healthcare costs are uh, so wildly unpredictable, mm. uh, and uh, which uh, which means that of course you might have this uh, this downward pressure on prices uh, that you're uh, that you're talking about, uh, because if not enough people right can afford it uh, mm. at the at the out of pocket price that you're talking about, then fewer people uh, fewer people will buy it, and that'll provide an incentive to uh, to eventually uh, to eventually lower that price. Uh, but meanwhile. Uh, if uh, if you you just can't afford uh, your uh, your radiation treatments uh, for uh, for cancer, uh, you're not going to be getting them. And there's an obvious concern uh, that you have um, that uh, that you could have a situation where enough people can afford it at the higher uh, at the higher price bracket. That especially for certain kinds of specialized services. Uh, things that uh, things that are are more that are innately more expensive because the machinery involved, etc. Uh, that like many products, right? It could still be worth it to the providers to sell it at the uh, uh, at the higher uh, higher price point for people who can just directly afford it out of pocket, or who, uh, in addition to the health savings account, can afford health insurance that's taxed uh, taxed at a normal rate. Uh, whereas a lot of people end up without something like Medicaid end up being left out in the cold. I'd also say that all okay. systems, all systems, like you talked earlier, right? I just want to make sure this doesn't get lost, right? You talked earlier about people on waiting lists, which I agree is the bitter fruit of uh, decades of Tory and new labor cuts to, uh, to the, uh, to the NHS, uh, but, and uh, stealth undermining and privatizing bits and pieces of it, which is appalling. Uh, and of course there's a vicious cycle because doing those things to undermine it, Right by uh, then leads to shortages that can then be ex used as an excuse uh, to paint the system in a negative light and thus justify future cuts. But all systems, right, even a really well-funded one, sure, you get some rationing around the edges because all systems yeah. have finite resources. The question is, when you run up to the limits of those finite resources and you can't cover everything for everybody, is the uh, is the rationing done on the basis of money like it is in the United States or is it done on the basis of something else and a relatively fairly administered uh, waiting list strikes me as vastly more just than people who can afford something getting to buy their way to the head of the line. No, I don't agree with that because long-term people who can afford to buy things getting to the head of the line are putting money into the system which um, then will attract more service providers to that service and bring the the price down over the long term so more people get access. But the thing is when you're speaking, of your challenge, when you're saying, oh, you know, some people are not going to afford it if you've got a health savings account, I think that number would be vastly lower than, than under the current system um, because, so, because the prices of services are so, and there's so much fraud 
um, the prices of services are so vastly inflated compared to what they would be in a free market. That, so, so, that's, that, sorry, Ben, let me develop my point because I gave you quite a lot, lot okay, of time. Okay, okay, but, okay. You know, but, you're, but, but you're saying something that right. I think it's important but, that we don't lose, but finish up your point. That, that's fine. So the thing is, um, you're, you're, you're speaking like we can create some... Uh, how, uh, there's... The, the resources are always going to be limited so long. Um, so so the, there comes a point at when someone's going to say, how much money are you going to pay to save someone one year of life? life. It's morbid as hell, but um, at some point, uh, the government administrators are going to decide um, who can live and who can die. And, it's, uh, and the, the problem is with our system, people are not aware of that and at some point they may they may have made different decisions during their lifetime did they know that at 70 years of age they're going to be denied services outright and no one here makes provisions for that because they believe that they're covered okay I, I, okay, okay I, but 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 yes of course of course that's absolutely true what you just said right that uh that I don't know that most people don't know that. I think everybody knows that. I think, oh. they, I think they make the rational calculation that uh, it's better when you run up against those limits, when those morbid choices have to be made, which, of course, a better funded version of the NHS, you'd have to make, 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 make fewer of them, of course. It's been undermined for decades. But, of course, in any system, you'd have to make some of them. The question is... What should be used to decide when that happens? Yes, do you let people higher up the socioeconomic spectrum buy their way to the head of the line, or do you try to have some relatively even-handed system uh, applying fair, impartial rules to decide how those scarce resources get allocated? Right. I, I, see, I see the point you're making, but I don't think you're actually taking into account how much cheaper healthcare services would be on a free market. Um, you know, there's, there's the Oklahoma Surgery Center, the Surgery Center in Oklahoma, which routinely does things over the counter, sometimes for a tenth of the price uh, that other hospitals are claiming insurance for. So I think with them, um, on a free market system, yes, you know, you, you'd have to have charities, you'd have to have um, uh, cooperatives, in some cases insurance, people you'd have charity hospitals and um, healthcare workers that are volunteering and so forth. Um, so some people also, go to a charity hospital if there's yeah, a yeah, area yeah, where yeah, other people get world-class uh, healthcare. Yeah. And yes, they can. Yeah, yeah, and I'm well. Yeah, and I have to bite the bullet and say uh, I'm not necessarily adverse to that. I think most people who go and you know, pay for the world ha uh, class healthcare system. They're shoveling money into the system that is then going to attract more service providers by the law of supply and demand, and that will bring the prices of service down, making them more affordable to ordinary people. Just the same way that those who are silly enough to buy the new laptop, uh, laptop or the new iPhone as, uh, as soon as it comes out, are basically subsidising people who wait a couple of years to get it to get it later. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, it seems inegalitarian at the front end of it, but at the it, tail it, end it, of it, it... It literally is inegalitarian. Yeah, no, it, it is inegalitarian. As, as, as a matter of but, life and death. Some on, the long, on the long term... On their income. But on the long term, even from a utilitarian perspective, I think it's going to turn out um, far better results. Um, so, so, so let's think about that prediction, right? That, that in the long term, 
uh, it'll turn out better. I would say parenthetically. For most people. I w- yeah, I yeah. would say I would say parenthetically that there are non-utilitarian things uh, or things that aren't directly utilitarian in terms of uh, of the most obvious metrics that should be taken into account here, uh, like you know dignity, right? You know, should you have to beg on GoFundMe to get life-saving medical care uh, versus uh, should it be your right as a citizen? Uh, but as far as the utilitarian calculations at least as far as the real world options, right? You can speculate about how a really, what you would regard as a really true free market would play out in practice. I can speculate about how I think it would play out in practice, but as far as the data that we have about things that have actually been implemented on a national scale, then the evidence is pretty clear. So people where you are uh, live longer on average, uh, die of treatable diseases less than people where I live. Uh, and so you could say, okay, sure. So maybe the NHS performs vastly better by every ever by every single metric than the American uh, the American healthcare system in terms of right. the purpose, like lowering infant mortality, extended life. Oh, ben, why are you cho- why are you choosing living, why are you choosing the American I'm sorry, system? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Anthony, you didn't let me cut you off okay, earlier. Okay. So, uh, you know, as far as all of these crucial metrics. The, uh, the British system performs vastly better than the American system. The Canadian system performs vastly better than the American system, etc. Uh, now, you could say, sure, some hypothetical system might perform even better, right? Just kind of the same way that if we're talking about the failures of Soviet planning, you know, somebody who is an ultra leftist could say, okay, but that wasn't real communism. And, you know, because they still had commodities and Soviet citizens were still paid in rubles. So if they'd gone all the way to real communism, it would have performed way better. And maybe, but if we're going to stay grounded in what's actually played out in the real world, the evidence is overwhelming that socialized systems perform perform far better than systems with more significant market elements. Right. Okay. First of all, you're poisoning the well and you're cherry picking. The it's interesting that you choose America as an example of a capitalist um, or a free market healthcare system when it's um, you know the provisions highly regulated in every single way imaginable. What, but you don't, what's but you don't say. But you don't. But you don't mention say Singapore, which has. So, one yeah, of the best Singapore is vastly less free market than the United States. Singapore comes in the no, world, no, right? that, Singapore has Obamacare okay. on steroids. Uh, when it comes to healthcare, right? Um, then, then you look at say something that, like the the Netherlands, where they have more of a you know they have mandatory insurance, but people can shop around. And um, I, I think, I, well, I mean, as far as I can tell, most of the most of the services in Singapore are paid for over the counter, even if it is with um, even if it is with government money. So people are shopping around. In America, you can't you can't. Uh, well, I mean, I. I, I I never at any point said that was going to defend the America's system. No, I, I understand. But, but the fact is almost American all of... That's uh, not all, my point. My point is that if you compare countries like Singapore... The, the, the Amer- America is one of... America is the single greatest America. innovator in healthcare. Okay. So do you think that, uh, do you think uh, right. that innovation... Do you think that medical innovation... But no, no, what I'm saying is... What I'm saying is... is private health insurance. In countries, in countries where we have socialized healthcare, we actually benefit from being able to employ innovations that were made in the private system yes, in America. That's a, very, that's a very common uh, argument. The reason that I find that very unpersuasive is that if you actually look 
at, uh, at medical innovation in the United States. Most of it's happening in government labs, especially when we're talking about NMEs, new molecular entities, as opposed to just taking something that's already been developed, quite likely in a government lab by the uh, National Institutes for Health uh, or at some public university, and tweaking it a little bit uh, to, uh, to patent it. And I would also point out that if we're going to broaden the discussion to the private pharmaceutical industry, that we've all been living since March with the bitter fruits uh, of, uh, of the decisions of that ph private pharmaceutical industry and really the incentives of that private pharmaceutical industry. Because even after, oh yes, even after MERS and SARS, which were both near misses with respiratory uh, ailments becoming a pandemic on this scale, uh, there was no big push to do research into other respiratory ailments. Why not? Because the short-term profit incentives of the pharmaceutical companies aren't really served by doing things like looking ahead to possible threats that might be coming up in the next few years and thinking like that. Uh, they're really incentivized to think in terms of quarterly, uh, of quarterly profit projections. So when the coronavirus happened, by the way, a direct result of deregulation in China, uh, lifting the ban on, uh, on selling uh, wild meat, uh, at, uh, at wet markets, when the coronavirus happened, we were left out in the cold because of the incentives uh, built in to having the pharmaceutical industry be a for-profit thing. Okay. Well, I mean, last I, I, do, I don't know if this is congruent, what you're saying, in addition to, or the last I heard, um, the FDA ruled that the CDC was the only company that was allowed to make tests at the beginning of the pandemic. And then... Um, the CDC's test didn't even work. So if they just let the pharmaceuticals make so, so, companies make so, tests, so as, as, then as maybe you, would have had testing say, kits sooner. In addition to that, sorry, Ben, can we please go one at a time? As, as my philosophy professor used to say, one fill at a time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying floor. to, but you, you keep <laughs> on expressing a thought and then moving on to two or three more thoughts. And I keep wanting to go back to the first thought, but say what you're going to say. Well, I mean, I, I'm giving you as much time as you need, so it would be good to get as much time at, oh, I mean, you've as I need. Times, right? That's okay. If the, if the FDA, you know, they, um, the alcohol companies said that they were able to manufacture sanitizers when there was a shortage of sanitizers, and the FDA t told them that they couldn't do it unless they put poison in it to stop people from drinking, and they said, well, we don't have the infrastructure to do that, and said, oh, well, then I guess you can't manufacture sanit hand sanitizer, even though we're in the middle of a shortage. Very soon at the beginning of the pandemic, so I'm not sure about that, uh, that particular okay. story, but the broader question is, why is it that the, there had not been research into respiratory ailments going on on a large scale from the pharmaceutical company. I don't understand how the, I don't understand how the pharmaceutical companies don't have an incentive to do that. They would be raking it in. If yes, they'd they're, done they're, that. they'd be raking it in because this happened. But the question is years ago, right? Are but, they thinking, okay, there's like a 5% chance that this will happen. Who can protect so, every possible so, so, eventuality? Uh, you, you can't protect every eventuality, but that's not the question. Look at the way that, for example, uh, Pentagon funding works, right? You know, are they, uh, are they only, you know, building tanks as needed uh, for wars that have already started? Or are they uh, being, asked, being asked to say, okay, here are a bunch of things that might happen. Of course, they're not going to cover every eventuality, but here are a lot of things that we're concerned with. And let's be prepared for all of those because you can have that with 
public systems in a way that you can't with companies that are going to be very narrowly focused on what's going to happen to their stock in the near future. I think if you could have that with public agencies, you would have had that. I mean, I don't really see why the government was better placed to predict this than the pharmaceutical uh, industry was. If I knew we were going to be debating, if I knew we were going to be debating healthcare, I would have um, specifically designed my talking points for this conversation. No, well, fair enough. I mean, this, um, I, I didn't think so either. This is just kind of where it yeah. went. But, uh, but, uh, but the point is not that the uh, that the government um, better better positioned to predict it I in mean, the first place. The point is that anybody could have predicted it, but because we had pharmaceutical production largely in the hands uh, of for-profit private companies, they didn't have an incentive uh, to to focus on that because uh, you know the the incentive isn't oh hey this could this could potentially be a big problem in a couple of years. The incentive is what are we going to be able to sell a lot of this year? Whereas if you take it out I'm of the sure. market you have less of that incentive. Uh, I do also want to get a, a question for you that-, uh, that I think um, companies are constantly making, uh, making long-term decisions. Sure, Love. yeah. Let's go, let's hear the question. Okay, uh, it's completely off topic, but, uh, but it was asked a while ago, so I, I, I just want to make sure we don't lose it. So do you want to finish what you were saying about this first? Well, you know, first of all, I just want- to circle back, you said that the healthcare outcomes are better here. I don't think that's got anything to do with our health service. I think that's a lot to do with American lifestyles being a lot worse than they are. What we really need to be looking at is... I've, I've, um, I've been to Scotland. I know what you have for breakfast there. Well, I don't. I'm a vegetarian, but I, I'm, I'm more than willing to grant that a lot of people's uh, diet here is, are, are unhealthy too. Um, I'm not sure we have as much of this uh, corn syrup sugar that you guys seem to love over there, but... Um, no, but I, yeah, think, you know, I, think, I think when you compare the U.S. to Canada, I think that uh, the lifestyle of Canadians is extremely similar to the lifestyle uh, of, uh, of Americans. Uh, and so you get similar kinds of disparities there, which is one of the reasons that I find that unconvincing. Uh, but well, uh, since I... Given that we do have... Right, given that, that most of the healthcare costs are going to treat illnesses that are preventable and are lifestyle-related... You know what, what? What are we going to do about this? Like, I'm like, not. I don't just want to fucking talk about economics with you. Excuse my language. It's like, uh, you know, I'm a mental health professional, right? I'm a therapist. I'm like, why is everyone fucking themselves up? You know, why, why, uh, why is the conversation not about, you know, what? I, I, I know you're probably going to come back and say it's the capitalist system, stupid. That's why everyone's addicted to things. Um, I do not but, think those two things are unrelated, but I do, I do hear what you're saying and, and just that, the conversation should be about that. But definitely if you're, I, 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 my fundamental point is we don't have healthcare systems. We have sick care systems. If I went to a financial advisor and he said to me, well, do you know what, Anthony, when your account's making money, I'll make less. And when it's losing money, I'll make more. Then I would actually expect um, my account to go down in value, not up in value. So basically, I think the way we, need, we think of healthcare needs to change. 
change and would potentially change on an actual free market, which is that you would you know, contract with people to help keep you well. They get paid more when you were doing well rather than when you were doing sick. That's a, a, a discussion we can have maybe no, another that's, time. That's, that's, but, enti- that's, that's entirely fair. I also, before, before we get to the question from earlier, there's a another question that came in that is, um, well, okay, it's not really a question, but I'll read it anyway and let you react to it. Uh, so um, Anthony Mark says, uh, why is research for new broad spectrum antibiotics only performed by the government? is because there's, uh, it's too unprofitable to justify the research despite the need for them, uh, given the prevalence of extensively drug-resistant bacteria and fungi. Okay. Uh, okay, so, uh, so, the, so since I think there's that uh, literally at any point, uh, I think that at any point we bring this up, uh, we are going to be deep in the middle of what we were talking about, so at a certain point we just have to do it. So. Uh, the totally off-topic question that that you have here, and um, and although actually I'm I'm just sort of fascinated to hear uh, because I I literally have no idea, uh, is um, Jeremy Selman uh, asks uh, what is Anthony's take on uh, Scottish independence? Okay, that's fair enough. I get asked that a lot. Um, I I guess it's a, an inevitability. Uh, I'm ambivalent about it. I guess, uh, broadly speaking, I prefer smaller political units over bigger ones. Um, I feel both Scottish and British, personally, for what my personal sentiments are. Uh, I don't particularly, I do worry that I don't want them to turn this into the People's Republic of Scotland. I'm sure you'd feel quite at home there, but um, Scotland's a little bit more left-wing on economic issues than uh, than England is. So I guess uh, I'm, I'm tentatively, I'm tentatively in favour of Scottish independence, but not strongly in favour. I'm also, I think, uh, tentatively against it, but not strongly against it. Right. Depends what day you catch me on. All right, that that is that is entirely fair, uh, Anthony. Um, I, I want you to uh, come back in a few weeks, and uh, and we won't we won't talk about healthcare every time because I know that I know that that is that we could have spent ten hours on that. Okay, uh, but well, I, I've got a request for your audience. Okay, yeah. on my YouTube channel there is a video called Medicare for All, uh, and I would ask you to go and check it out. It's only half an hour long. You can also listen to it on the Scottish Liberty Podcast podcast feed if you prefer to listen to it. Leave your YouTube comments. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm right. I don't care. Um, but check it out. I tried to do some research for that one. I think you'll find it quite informative. All right. Fair enough. So actually, I, I think a really fun exercise, and I'm saying this not having watched the video yet myself, I will check it out. Uh, but uh, you, can, uh, you can watch Anthony's video uh, you can uh, you can um, you can read my article in Current Affairs uh, called "The Many Bad Arguments Gets Medicare for All," uh, and if uh, if if Anthony makes arguments that uh, that aren't covered in that article, uh, then um, then those are probably ones that that I haven't thought of. So if we ever do return to the subject of healthcare, uh, those would be good ones to uh, to talk about. But I know that we have a lot of other subjects to cover. So if I can get you back in a few weeks, we'll move on to one of those. Okay, great. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Um, uh, now joined by Crystal Ball, the co-host of uh, The Rising. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the election related stuff. So thank you so much for coming on, Crystal. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's great to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I always really enjoyed um, watching you on the Michael Brooks show. And, uh, and so, so, yeah, this is, this is great. I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, so, uh, as we are recording this, this is a pre-record. Uh, so, this is the day after uh, the, uh, the Pence-Harris debate, which is mm. the entry point of anything. Riveting stuff <laughs> right there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess like one of the, um, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, one of the most interesting and maybe disturbing things about, about that debate was, uh, you know, to put it uncharitably, but not, I think, inaccurately, uh, Harris received, you support serious cl- action on climate change as like a smear. Right. Yeah, it, that was, that was maybe the most frustrating part of the debate is, on that issue, on healthcare, um, on even who you should be working with and who you should be quote unquote unifying with. Basically, Biden and Harris have accepted the right wing framing. You know, they've accepted the right wing framing that fracking is good and we should be all in on fracking. They've accepted the right wing framing that the Green New Deal is bad and that to be tarred as a supporter of the Green New Deal is a terrible thing. And, you know, I'll be frank, I haven't seen any polling particularly recently, but the polling at the beginning of the year on the Green New Deal had overwhelming majority support. Now, what I suspect will happen is when you see not only Republicans attacking the Green New Deal, but also Democrats attacking the Green New Deal, it's going to kill it, right? Because the public looks at that as a signal of like, oh, you know, everybody's against this thing. Only crazy people are for saving the planet and creating hundreds of thousands of new jobs. So this must be a terrible thing. Yeah. And to me, that's like writ large what the Democratic Party does over and over and over again, except the right-wing framing and cut off the possibility of progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the creating the new jobs is, is kind of the key part because it seems like, you think, okay, well, why, why is it that they're, they're taking, you know, that they're saying, oh, no, that's a smear. We don't, we don't want to stop fracking, right? You know, fracking's great. Well, some of it might be about uh, donor influence, of course, right? I mean, that's always in the mix. But, like, it also seems like some of it is that since everybody knows, well, you know, Trump is pretending not to know it, right? But, like, everybody knows that they're not going to do anything like the Green New Deal. So, uh, given that, being against fracking, for example, would just mean a bunch of people are going to lose their jobs uh, because they can't do the pitch that, that Bernie could have done, which is, yeah, uh, these particular jobs are going to go away, but a whole bunch of new ones are going to be created instead. That's actually such a great point and why the innovation of the Green New Deal and that framing was so important and such an innovation in terms of the environmentalism movement, because you always had this like, you know, this trade off of, oh, if you're opposed to fracking, that means you're going to kill jobs. And if you don't have it as part of a comprehensive framework that people can wrap their heads around, then that's going to be a hard argument to win. I will say, though. The polling that's out there on fracking, even in the state of Pennsylvania, 
is not what people think it is. There's the, the most recent polling has actually majority in the state of Pennsylvania support for banning fracking. And, you know, I, I don't want to project my own impressions on the matter. It's very complicated. I'm sure people feel lots of ways, but I used to live in that area in Ohio and I would live there at a time when fracking was just sort of coming into fruition. People were really excited about the possibility of job creation, but it ended up not being the boon to the economy and the lifeline that they ultimately thought it would be. I've worked a lot in, um, I've, I've done some work in West Virginia politics and obviously famously they've been completely exploited by like the coal barons there and had all the natural resources sucked down and kept the people in poverty. And the natural gas industry with fracking is doing basically the same thing. It's really by and large, not the local people who have benefited it's been these large conglomerates, outsiders coming in who buy up the, the rights um, to the natural gas or the mineral rights. And so I don't think that it's the panacea for people in those states that maybe national leaders kind of perceive it, clumsily perceive it to be. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm, I'm also wondering about, about the other end of that, which is, you know, like Pence accusing Harris and, and Biden of supporting these things, which seems like a big shift that we've seen since 2016, because, yes. yeah, because in 2016, uh, Trump's big line of attack against Hillary was uh, that she was in bed with Goldman Sachs and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and globalists and, and, uh, and that she wasn't, you know, supporting the interests of ordinary working class people. And now there's been this, there's still like a little bit of that, right? They'll do ads where they talk about creating jobs and things like that. But it seems like the big line of attack now is that, you know, Biden is secretly a communist and, uh, you know, like, like that seems like uh, what, the, what the Trump campaign has had to go with this time, which seems like maybe it has a lot to do with the fact that none of the economic rhetoric uh, that they used in uh, 2016 really had anything to do with almost anything that's happened since then. That's exactly right. And I mean, Trump has just morphed into like whatever threads of an idea he had back in 2016. Now he's talking to like Larry Kudlow and Art Laffer and Fox News boomer brain is basically like infected his mind. So he's rolled out the same attacks against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris that Republicans from time immemorial have rolled out against Democrats. Really, the only exception to that was 2016 and the way that he very effectively went after Hillary Clinton. And here's what's so amazing. The great irony is that as he's been attacking Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, something maybe unprecedented in American politics has happened. Their favorability ratings have gone up. <laughs> That's how bad of an attack, like that never happens, okay? Over the right. course of the campaign, it's ugly, it's vicious. Favorability ratings inevitably go down no matter who you are. Theirs have actually gone up because the attack is so bad. And I think also because he's been so just absurdly terrible that in mm -hmm. contrast, people are like, well, they're better than that guy. But I also think there's something too like people right now, if you ask them if, you know, about a UBI, it's like 80% mm. support. Medicare for all is up to, you know, universal healthcare is up to like 60, 70% support. People actually want 
left-wing economics, right? They want the government to do something. To, so to the, uh, to the extent that the attack landed at all, maybe it convinced people that Joe is going to do more for them than they thought and that he actually <laughs> is going to do. Right, right, right. Biden might be getting undeserved credit for actually. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. They're like, oh, maybe he will give me. I didn't really think he was going to do health care, but who knows? <laughs> Trump says he will, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm also wondering about about your thoughts about the more general phenomenon, right? Because uh, obviously, 2016, like you said, I mean, it was it was this kind of different thing that happened on the Republican side that they decided they were at least going to to use a lot of populist rhetoric, uh, mm-hmm. and that you know there was at least some, you know, Trump said he wasn't going to cut entitlements and, uh, and, and there were some attacks on, uh, on trade deals, which I guess is the only part that's sort of become, you know, reality since then, you know, they've reintegrated yeah. some of that. Uh, but I guess from my perspective, right, maybe you have a different take on some of this. It seems like even just beyond Trump personally, uh, that whole populist turn by that part of the right like it, it seems like you know increasingly right. Like that, there's there's not a lot of there there, right? That like that if if yeah. you uh, that even the people who are most most associated with it, um, you know, like um, well, I guess Steve Bannon, Joshua Howley, you know, some of these people, right? You know that they have that if you actually like really dig into it, like like so for example, right? I remember a few years, couple of years ago. There was this monk debate between Steve Bannon and uh, David Froome yeah, about yeah. the uh, the future of politics. And it was this like really like heavy thing, and the whole thing, if you watched it, it was just um, it was just Froome sort of throwing rhetoric at at Bannon uh, for an hour, insinuating he's a fascist, and then uh, Bannon throwing back a bunch of like rhetoric about working class deplorables. But the entire thing was really like no policy discussed at all. Yeah. And, and then uh, more recently, actually this year, uh, Bannon went on a podcast called uh, Red Scare, uh, where a lot, and a lot of people were like upset with them for even having him on because they're you know, platforming him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I thought it was actually incredibly useful because in that discussion, they asked a question like this really incredibly simple question, which is if you're such a populist, why don't you support Medicare for all? And it seems like that same question could be applied to um, almost all of these guys, certainly anybody who's anywhere near any kind of like power or media influence. I completely agree. And Josh Hawley is a perfect example because in terms of members of Congress, he's been really sort of held up as the example, right, of this new direction. And you just look at the Amy Coney Barrett um, mm-hmm. confirmation fight. And look, yes, abortion is the bright red flashing issue. It's the thing the media wants to talk about because it's easy to talk about, like culture wars, easy to do, right? And it's the thing the right has been obsessed about for decades. The reality is a lot of what the Supreme Court is going to have to do has to do with labor rights, as you know, Mm -hmm. has to do with corporate power, has to do with antitrust. These are things that Josh Hawley has pretended to care about. Yet, there's none of that critical commentary about Amy Coney Barrett, who has a dreadful record from what we've seen so far with regards to just handing the, you know, everything over to corporations and being totally subservient to corporate power. So suddenly, you know, all of that part 
has just been erased. And, you know, his record, he's, you know, for right to work, I mean, he's against any sort of labor rights, all of that stuff is completely hollow. So I think you had a lot of people who saw what Trump pulled off and thought, this could work as a path to power. Like he's mm-hmm. on to something. And the truth is he was on to something because the, regardless of where you are on the ideological spectrum, where I am on the ideological spectrum, there is a large group of American voters who are left economics and right culturally. Right. And that perspective is not reflected at all in our politics. Like you can't think of one person who actually is in leadership or in the judiciary who represents that part of American politics. And so the fact that Trump spoke at all to that kind of quadrant, which is the most underrepresented, I think, of any part. I mean, I would argue, actually, the true left is completely underrepresented right. as well. But that quadrant of American, of American politics is just goes without complete any representation. But what you see with Trump and he doesn't really have any ideology. It just comes down to who's the most loyal to him and who's in his Mm. ear and, you know, whatever he's feeling that day is, you know, all over the place. But what it comes down to in terms of the Republican party is there's just too much money. Mm. There's too much think tank infrastructure. There's just too much behind keeping them in this totally pro corporate space, which means that, you know, they can just kind of hide that part away put the culture war front and center. And by the way, I think the democratic party does their own version of this because that way, all you have to do, you don't have to actually pass any legislation. Right. You don't have to actually provide for people's material needs. You don't have to actually challenge anyone who's difficult to challenge, who has power. All you have to do is like say the right words and signal that you're on the right side of those battles. And people will like, yes, queen you all day long. Right. And so I think that's, I mean, truly, I mean, yeah. Kamala Harris, Perfect example. Really, Elizabeth Warren at this point, sad as I am to say that, perfect example. She runs her presidential campaign. The woman who, you know, used to talk about the two income trap and Joe Biden can't be called a champion of women when he sells them out in the morning and then pretends to be their friend in the evening or whatever our original quote is, comes down to like, I'm going to wear a pink Planned Parenthood scarf at my inauguration, <laughs> right? Uh, and, 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 and he has props and for the it. entire primary, she never once brought up at a single debate the bankruptcy bill, uh, which was her origin story, uh, because exactly. that would have meant attacking, uh, you know, attacking Biden. And I guess maybe she'd already made the calculation that uh, that, that might not be a good idea. Yeah. I mean, to me, the DNC, when she's there doing her bit with the BLM blocks, children's yes. blocks in the background, like, and, ever, and, and like, it's bad enough that that happened. What really made me lose my mind is the number of people were like, that's amazing. Like, it's like, it's doing anything. It's not doing anything, nothing, but that's so much easier than actually legislating, than actually being an ac- accountable, than actually fighting power. And you get so many props and you ascend to the highest levels and you get to talk to Joe Biden or whatever is your heart's desire. And so, yeah, that's basically the hellscape that we live in currently. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair (laughs) enough. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I, happy note there. I appreciate that. Uh, But right no, for sure. Uh, And, and, and I think that maybe in, in Warren's case, part of the reason uh, was that, I mean, it's not just about 
you know, Elizabeth Warren as, as a person, although, you know, whatever, like there's probably a lot you can say about that at this point, but uh, it's also that it seems like the sort of coalition that she was trying to build was like really leaning on these kind of suburban liberal voters uh, who are not, um, you know, who might be okay with to a certain extent, like a certain amount of social democracy. Oh yeah. I think are probably going to be made, um, I mean, a little, un- I mean, look, I mean, clearly they weren't comfortable with the Bernie approach. They would have supported Bernie Sanders, right? You know, that, that's so. So I think the problem with that type of voter is that it's never, the economic issues are never going to be their priority. Mm-hmm. So they will probably tell you by and large that they supported Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Like if you pull them, you'll get pretty good economic responses this is something I see like Matt Iglesias arguing, right? He's like, look, they're more economically liberal than the population. Like there's this coalition that you can work with. And maybe he's right. But I look at Virginia, which is the Mm. state that I live in and grew up in. And this is a blue state now. Governors, Democrat, the House, the Senate, everybody's Democratic. And it is still number 51 out of 51 on workers' rights. They've done, they passed the ERA, Right. They did. I mean, and these are things I support. They, you know, passed this and that Equality Act. They dealt with the Confederate monuments. Those things they put they prioritized and the workers issues, the minimum wage, collective bargaining at the like in the public sector. All those things were pushed off, put on the back burner. Maybe next time, maybe next time, maybe next time. And so there's still 50 first out of 51 in terms of workers rights, a blue state. And so that's the problem is that those suburban voters will never hold politicians accountable for on those economic issues. They will never prioritize them. Those aren't the things that tickle their fancy. Those aren't the things that they'll, you know, skip their brunch for. And so you end up with a Virginia kind of progressivism, which is all, you know, culture issues, which I'm not going to say don't matter. They do. And representation, all those things matter. But if you're actually talking about building out a multiracial working class coalition, like a society that is decent to people and cares about the dignity of workers and economic rights, you are never going to get there with a coalition that is centered on the desires of white suburban affluent elites. You're just not. Now, the one thing I've been thinking, I'm actually curious your thoughts on this, Ben, because this is something that I'm not settled on it at all. So I think Ford and the Democratic Party and 2024, and I know it's sort of disgusting to think about these things, but whatever, that's what I've been doing. And whether there will be an opportunity to primary either Kamala or Joe, depending on you know whether Joe decides to run another time. I think that the most likely winning coalition in a Democratic primary would probably be the young, like what Ed Markey was able to pull off, the young Bernie left, multiracial, and the sort of white affluent liberal type Warren voters. Like that's who backed Markey by and large. And I think if you were going to put together a coalition to defeat Joe or Kamala in the primary, that's probably what it would have to look like because Older African-American voters are very, you know, they're very loyal to the Democratic Party establishment. I think they'll back Joe like 100 percent. They'll back Kamala 100 percent if it's her. So you have to work with the remainder of the coalition. And to me, the problem, I I just don't know if you can, 
if you can ever form a coalition with those white suburbanites that's going to lead in a direction that ultimately gets us any further down the road is kind of what i'm questioning right now yeah no for sure i mean i don't know if you read there was an article uh, a few months ago in jacobin by matt carp is called like this is the future yeah yeah Yeah. liberals want uh, that, that was about this exact thing. And, and I mean, I think it's, I think it's a huge problem because uh, if, I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible. Uh, I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders did come very, very close to, uh, to, to winning this time. I think that if, uh, I think that if the centrist candidates had consolidated, you know, in the way that they did, and I mean, whatever, we can play what if and who knows. Right. But I think, right. You know, I think that uh, I think that some people were way too quick to just sort of jump to this kind of extreme pessimism about that. You know, that the fix is in; it can never happen because it sort of seems like okay if you're watching a hockey game and the you know and and your team is is winning for the first two periods and then they start messing up and they lose, right? You know, like like I, I think jumping to there's no way they ever can and there's win. never no way they'll ever win. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, right? So. So I think it's possible, but I think there is a huge problem there because uh, these kind of more like affluent suburban liberal voters are the people who are much more likely to vote in, in Democratic primaries. You have to be kind of, or any, like, I mean, or their equivalents, right? You know, like, because to, to even vote in a primary in the first place, you have to be a little bit more plugged in, like, you have, like not everybody, like, tons of people. I mean, I went to Nevada to uh, to canvas for Bernie Sanders, you know, in, in um, February, Right. You talk to tons of people who don't even know, you know, when they're when the state's caucus or you know primary day yeah. is. Right? Yeah. That's very common. Uh, so I think that I think that it is like structurally a problem. I think it, I think it could happen. And I guess maybe to uh, I mean, I, I mean, obvious I, it's just it's just incredibly hard. Right. Because of this of this problem. But that said, I think kind of going back to what you were saying about the like quadrant of the population that's culturally conservative but uh but open to or even supportive of economically left-wing things uh i i guess i think that at least in the u.s i think it might be different in some like developing countries or you know countries where you know like the political system is less solidified but at least in the u.s i think that structurally i think you couldn't really get a, a right-wing populist um, uh, like movement in power that actually carried out like the economic stuff, uh, and you could at least in principle it'd be obviously right. I mean, it's like saying that you know you could you know whatever like you could uh, um, that you know that you could uh, you know that like you could make it into you know into some like incredibly prestigious competition or something you probably won't right but you could right. you know, but, like you could uh you could get a successful like bernie style social democratic coalition that actually did carry out its stuff and and i and i tend to think the reason that that could happen and the right wing one it's it's much harder to see how it could happen is that since there are those obviously those like really deeply vested interests you're talking about in both parties for sure right that like that would would block it that like you need some kind of counterweight to counteract that and that uh that i mean obviously like this itself feels like a fantasy because we're living in such dismal circumstances right now that hellscape you were talking about earlier but a a revitalized labor movement could play that role on the left 
It's the only way forward. I mean, in my view, it's the only way forward because what does this project always crash on the rocks of? It's always, you know, the divisions of race and the union hall is the most desegregated. It's the most integrated political space in America. And I mean, also like the labor movement at this point, disproportionately black and brown, but these are, this is, this is the only way that, that it actually happens that you have a worker centric, like a working class centric movement where you can bridge those divides and have a coalition that works and makes sense. Like to me, that's the only path forward. And one of the things that's concerning to me is that I think a, a lot of the left, you know, frankly, because the labor movement has been so destroyed and is so anemic at this point in terms of a percent of the population, like a lot of young people, young people have never been more supportive of labor unions. Labor union approval rating is like about historic levels of, of highs, but there's not a lot of direct experience with it. Right. Right. So it's like a theoretical support, but it's again, never pushed as like, this is the number one priority and here's how we're going to get to this goal. And here's the legislation that we're going to pass. It's actually going to enable people to be able to organize and form unions. And so to me, that's, that's where a lot of the work needs to be done is on putting that agenda front and center, because I do not, I do not see another plausible path forward, frankly. Yeah, right. No, for sure. I mean, I, I think that obviously it's it's an incredibly heavy lift to rebuild that, but it's it's but that is the only that's the only thing that could do it, right? For sure. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to switch gears a little in uh, in the last uh, in the last few minutes and and think about because I, I think I think there's like a natural tie-in because uh, because you know what we've been talking about you know for the last few minutes is why you couldn't have um, the, well, look, I mean, just, 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 you know, like put it this way, right? Like, like why the, uh, the, there is a way forward for the, the sort of populism represented by the crystal half of the rising, right? You know, but, uh, but it's much harder to see what that would look like to actually, uh, enact, uh, your, your co-host agenda because there'd be no, no equivalent, right? Social force there. Uh, and I think that, I think that a lot of people on the left, um, you know, maybe like sort of, I mean, I think, I guess I want to separate it out because I think that like some of it is just dumb, but I think that they, you know, but then like some of it, they're like, you know, there's like a real issue there that, you know, that we could talk about. Right. So, so the, the like dumb critique is, uh, is, Oh, you, you co-host a show with, with a conservative. So therefore you're like, I don't know, you know, just pretending to be a leftist or, you know, you secretly love Trump and Tucker Carlson or whatever, right? Like that's the, that's the dumb version, but then like the, uh, uh, and you know, whatever. I mean, I I think that, uh, I think that we'd be much better off if there were a lot more shows, frankly, that were like, you know, co-hosted by like somebody who, you know, like instead of doing the usual mainstream media thing where you have, where the, um, you know, where you have somebody who's like barely a liberal and then somebody who's a, uh, Who's who's this a like Bush Republican? Yeah, this like Bush Republican who represents like two percent of the population. Uh, that uh, that you know that you had more places where uh, where people who who were real leftists uh, could um, could reach an audience that they wouldn't reach if it were just them, right? You know, so so I, I think that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but then uh, then I guess like the other half of it is like how. Um, you know, how to think of it in terms of like, 
obviously, you know, in, in that, in that role, right. You know, like um, you're, you're going to, I think, you know, do things like tend to pick stories that like, you know, where, where that like represent some sort of like area of mutual interest, you know, that, you know, which, which oftentimes, you know, means, you know, means economic stuff. Uh, and that makes perfect sense. Uh, but, uh, but then like, I think, uh, I think that the the danger that some people might see is then like the distinction, you know, the distinction ends up getting blurred or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or it ends up um, or you, you end up not like, uh, you know, to, you know, or like somebody could like, I think the worry that people have is like somebody could watch that and they just think, Oh, well, you know, populism, populism, you know, whatever it's, it's all, right. it's all the same. You know, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I hear those critiques and I take them in and I really do, especially the ones that are, you know, more thoughtful as you, as you put it. And I guess here's my thing. I feel right now that the country is absolutely breaking apart. You know, if you ask people something like 70% of Americans believe this election is going to end in violence, some ridiculous percent believes that if their candidate doesn't win, democracy will literally be over. And I think that the cable news media, this is like a little bit of a long answer, but I buy into Matt Taibbi's thesis that cable news media has basically decided since they don't have the Cold War anymore and the Islamic terrorism thing isn't working as well as like a national enemy, they've created our fellow citizens as the enemy, right? So it's no longer some scary outside threat. Now it's your neighbor. Now it's your friend. Now it's your cousin who has a different ideology than you. And obviously, you know, being on the left, we see this really clearly from liberals who, you know, Trump is literal Hitler. And if you support Trump, you're enabling Hitler and you're a Nazi enabler. I mean, just like the most vicious rhetoric, not just aimed at elites, which, listen, to me, go to town when it comes to elites, like pull no punches, all of that but aimed at everyone who either voted for Trump or li- didn't vote for Hillary. That's 70% of the population right? <laughs> that either didn't vote at all, voted for Trump, voted third party. And so if you're literally saying all of those people are out of bounds to even have a conversation with, I don't know how that you move forward as a country. Yeah. So- uh, yeah, no, for sure. And I was, I was just going to throw in there that, uh, yeah. that I think uh, that that's a, you know, also not only combined is that a majority of the population, right. But we're talking about a much more uh, diverse group than people say in this off, often imagine. Absolutely. Like, yes, but, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, there are some views that Sagar has that we have gotten into very ugly fights over and that have, like those times have been hard to deal with and confront and have that dialogue, which I think is reflective of an ugliness and messiness, frankly, that's happening in a lot of families and relationships across the country right now. But, and maybe this is hokey, but I just fundamentally don't believe in this idea of like, well, I know who the right moral actor is and who's good and who's bad. And if we push people out of the public sphere, that's the way to win and move forward. I don't think it works that way. I think you actually empower people by saying like, oh, this is, idea is so difficult and so dangerous. We can't even talk about it. We can't even talk to people who hold that idea. It makes it cooler and sexier than it deserves to be ultimately. Yeah, there are a lot so, of careers on the right that are entirely built on that. Absolutely, 100%. So listen, everybody always talks about how you're creating a pipeline to the alt-right. What they never think about is how you build a bridge back. 
And this is not just me theorizing. I get the messages. I see the responses because we have this space of dialogue where people who really profoundly disagree with me on certain things appreciate that at least I'm there for the dialogue. They listen to me and my views about maybe Donald Trump a lot more than they would, you know, an MSNBC space or like a, a homogenous space where you just have all left views. So you actually create a space where you can persuade people and bring them over to some leftist views, to some more moderate views, some less disastrous in my view or cruel views. That space exists in Rising. And I think if you just have a monoculture and you just try to like push people out of the public sphere, I think it's incredibly counterproductive and doesn't ultimately lead you where you want to go. Look, we have to acknowledge reality as it exists. And a lot of the working class, predominantly the white working class, but actually the multiracial working class in general has views that you and I would really disagree with and find very problematic. If our goal is a multiracial working class movement, we aren't going to get there if we're like, okay, well, these ones are evil. And so we're not dealing with you at all. We just want to pick and choose the parts of it that we're comfortable with. That's not going to lead anywhere ultimately. Yeah, right. And, uh, and, and I think like, I, I will say, like, especially over the, the summer, which is when I think you probably had a lot of those most um, contentious conversations, right? Yeah, especially everything and protests. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so uh, I you know, like, look, I'll say I often, um, you know, listen to uh, the the Joe Rogan show would like usually when I run because like like the all the other podcasts that I listen to like you, like usually it's like hard to focus in that time, you know. But like I think just kind of like listening to usually Rogan talking to some comedian or mixed martial arts guy I can kind of do that, right? You know, uh, while I'm uh, while I'm disoriented. But uh, so over the summer I listened to uh, to the one that you you guys did on there and um, and. Uh, you know, which was a time, right, when I think that, you know, you know, Rogan's all over the place. This was this was one of the times that, you know, he had one of the takes I most, you know, vociferously disagree with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and I thought, like, listening to the way that you sort that, like, you did push back very hard, especially on the question of, um, of all the stuff that was going around at the time about sending the military, you know, in, into into cities to uh, to suppress uh, the post George Floyd, uh, unrest, uh, that I, I guess, I guess at, at a certain point, right. I, I wonder what a lot of the people who make this criticism want in that situation, right? Like is, is, is the, is the correct approach to just say, um, you guys are fascists. I'm not talking to you anymore. And like, and like literally just like end the zoom call or whatever, right. Is, is it to, uh, is it to scream at them? You know, cause if it's not one of those things, then, I think it would have to be what you did, which was, which was to, uh, you know, which was like to push back hard, but in a way that is clearly about trying to, to persuade uh, people who don't start from the same place rather than like just telling them that they're bad people uh, for, for having this view. Yeah. And I don't want to speak in too broad terms because I think there are people who are like, you know, who really are think thoughtful about these issues and have problems with, with rising and have expressed them. And like, that's fine. That's their, that's their right to have those views. And I agree that it, it's kind of a complicated and complex issue, but I just think from a purely strategic point of view, if you want to make progress and you want to build a movement 
increasingly like narrowing the scope of who you're even allowed to talk to or engage with is completely counterproductive. And unfortunately, in on Twitter in particular and social media in general, um, what is often rewarded is that kind of, you know, it's very cheap and easy of like picking this fight and signaling that you're more pure and more left and more whatever than everybody else. And it's not actually about reaching a goal. There's no right. end goal in mind other than signaling your own personal virtue in this moment. And I think that has been deeply destructive, um, especially post burning because burning was kind of this galvanizing force and kind of kept all everybody on the same page and after him, there's a little bit of a vacuum and a little bit of a free-for-all and certainly a lot of, like, intra-left squabbling, which, okay, fine, whatever. Sure. But I, I think that the instinct to signal personal virtue over any sort of strategic objective of how do we build a coalition that actually is going to win power and actually advance the issues and the ideals that we care about – that so that piece to me is what has been kind of most troubling about this time because I just think bottom line is it's extraordinarily counterproductive and will destroy any hope of being able to build and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think that I mean I think part of like so I think part of the issue is that I think a lot of people maybe like mix up two things they should keep separate. That it goes back to what you're saying about elites versus uh, you know your uncle you know, right. who, who voted for Trump, uh, which is, they th they'll say things like, oh, you can't convince these people, but it's really unclear what the, these people in that sentence is, right? Like, yeah. is, is that Donald Trump? Is that Tucker Carlson? Or is that like... Um, your... Every person who voted for Donald Trump, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, right? And then, like, I think the other part is that I wonder how much of this stuff is is just kind of a hangover from... You know, because like the the emergence of some kind of like real social democratic left in the U.S. is such a recent thing that they mm -hmm. they're that um, like five years ago. Well, actually, five years ago, literally, when Bernie Sanders announced that he was running for president, he announced it to like ten people, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so it's it's the super recent development. Uh, and and generally speaking, you know, the like any kind of perspective to the left of of liberalism has been um, has been super marginal uh, in the United States uh, for for a very 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 long time. Uh, and I think that in that marginality, like um, people get used to thinking of politics purely as like taking a stand as a kind mm. of like performance of moral descent from whatever horrible stuff is going on. So that. like, you know, I love Noam Chomsky, but like you read Chomsky, there's like never a place in any of that where he sort of pauses to be like, okay, well, what if there was like a socialist government that took power in the United States? How would it handle these issues? Cause it would just never come up. Right. Because right. He's, he's being formed at a time when that's, that's just, that would feel like such a like silly fantasy to like, like even, even bother with that. But then the problem is that when you do start to get some opportunities to, um, you know, to build a movement and maybe even take power, you still got that habit, right? That you, you, that you think of politics primarily in terms of, uh, of demonstrating your individual moral commitment. And that makes it really easy uh, to then get into the habit. If, if that's all it is, right. Then like, Oh, then instead of, uh, instead of taking people who don't agree with you about everything, but like maybe are willing to support you, uh, you know, might have bad, like, 
cultural attitudes on some things, but like maybe they're even willing to put those aside for the sake of getting some of what they want instead of saying, oh, good. Right. Like that means like that, that you might win because more people support you to have this instinct to say, well, OK, since what we're doing is we're exhibiting our, our moral commitment to opposing whatever's going on, uh, then when new people show up, uh, your impulse is to like interrogate whether they really have the right moral commitment. Right. Like, are they really committed or n- enough or not? Uh, and, uh, and, and if they aren't, then they, they don't get to be in the, you know, they don't get to be in the club, you know, they're not yeah. really. And can I just say from a, yeah. this is something I'm thinking about today. I actually hilariously because of a Ken bone tweet. <laughs> I don't know if you followed this particular Ken bone saga, but, um, he tweeted that he supported Hillary in 16. This time around, he decided to cast his ballot for Joe Jorgensen, okay, the libertarian third-party candidate. And he then followed up that with a tweet indicating that Trump people had all been really nice to him about his decision and that liberals, I think in particular, had kind of lost their mind. You're a Nazi collaborator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he had this note at the end that was like, I don't think you all realize how much that reaction pushes people to the right. right. And so – that little gem of Ken Bone wisdom I've been sort of chewing on today. And it made me realize that, you know, humans were not particularly rational, right? Most people, you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about like, this is where we stand on the issues and this is my ideological framework. And this is how I think about the world. Like most people are not doing that. And that's not a knock on them. They're just like doing other things with their lives. And so a lot of what your views end up defaulting to is whatever club you feel you're a part of. Mm-hmm. So taking the Ken Bone example, in that moment, the people that made him feel welcome and like he was part of their club was the right. And so if you're not a particularly ideologically formed person, if that's the group that is accepting you as part of their tribe and making you feel welcome, well, over time, guess what's going to happen? Right. You're going to start to see things their way. You're going to start to look at the world through this lens. Before you know it, you're a full-fledged right-winger, right? right. Well, the same thing can happen on the left. Mm-hmm. If you just if you make people feel welcome, if they're in the club and you kind of signal to them, like, we're all part of the same tribe, over time, you will win them over. Like, their views will change to morph and to fit that ideological lens, if you are shutting the door on increasing numbers of people and explicitly telling them like, we don't want you, we think you're evil, we think you're irredeemable, we think you're doing all these horrible things, like the worst things you can think of. Yeah, they're not, no, they're not going to agree with you. You're never going to win them over that way. And so in a lot of ways, it's just, it's just sort of human psychology and and the way that we work and we have to be, if if we want to build, we have to be realistic about those things. Yeah, for sure. And and that just seems like put that way, right? That just seems so obvious. Yes, of course, most humans are going to react better uh, to uh, to people who, you know, are, you know, making the way, hey, welcome, right? You know, like... Not like, being assholes to yes, them. <laughs> not being complete assholes to them, right? And, uh, then, then, brilliance for the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, right? Uh, and that sounds super obvious, but uh, if... I mean, if you are around a, a lot of left-wing spaces, uh, a lot of people um, certainly don't act like they believe that, right? Like that, that, and that they are really, really fixated on on coming up with reasons to, uh, you know, reasons to to 
like make a negative moral judgment about like any given individual, even if it's, you know, if it's not like a decision maker, it's not, you know, Ken, it's Ken Bone, right? I mean, what's, what's the, like, you're, you're talking literally about one person who you maybe sort of vaguely remember as a punchline from 2016. Uh, and he's just this like completely powerless, random individual voter, but you're still coming up with reasons to morally condemn him. Right, um, right. And, and it seems like a lot of that it has to do uh, with like, because I wondered about this a lot, right, over the summer, you know, when there was that, you know, that post-George Floyd moment that you would think would have that same kind of galvanizing effect we're talking about with Bernie Sanders earlier that, like, would really, like, reorient a lot of people on the left towards, like, the, the high-priority things uh, because, hey, this is this, like, real issue. This is, like, literally a matter of life and death. Uh, but instead of that, you you started to get a lot of focus on often like the pettiest possible symbolic victories, right? Uh, and you know, like like literally, you know, so oh, there's like a you know military base that you know was was named after you know uh, was named after some terrible historical figure, and you know we're we're still going to have like planes that like fly out of it that you know that kill people abroad, but. Uh, but we're not going to name it that. And, you know, you so have the right name on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that it, like a lot of that is, well, actually changing the way policing works would be in, incredibly difficult. It's a huge political lift. Whereas getting something's name changed, getting somebody fired, uh, getting um, like getting somebody like, you know, pressure in some company just to say the right combination of words in the right order about black lives, all that stuff is really easy and really winnable because like those are things you can do that people will do for you so that you'll like stop being mad at them and you'll move on uh, right. to, to the next, the next case. And it, and, and it seems like a lot of this stuff is that same impulse in this like really small scale. Like, Oh, uh, I, I can't actually like, well, okay, you can yell at Donald Trump on Twitter. He just won't notice. Uh, but, uh, you know, but, like, I can't do that. But this random person over here, right, I can let them know that they suck, and that might actually ruin their day. Uh, and that ends up feeling like some sort of miniature pseudo-victory. Mm, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's really true. And, I mean, and part of why, obviously, the the protest movement collapse to these more symbolic gestures is because not only are they easy, they're comfortable. They're comfortable for like all the corporations who wanted to be involved and wanted, you know, Amazon putting Black Lives Matter on their homepage and whatever, like J Jamie Dimon. Remember that picture? Did you see that? Like kneeling in a bank vault? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like oh no <laughs> those things are comfortable right they don't actually challenge or threaten the bottom line of the people who run this country and so yeah I think you're right I think that kind of translates into the Twitter space too where in the absence of being able to win real victories like this is a small way to have a sense of power and I also want to say mm. I get it like right he, it is a very dangerous moment in American history. There's no denying that. I mean, I feel this country is unraveling. It's spinning out of control between 
2020, obviously, in particular, I mean, between the pandemic and the lockdowns and the loss of work and people being unable to pay their rent or their mortgage or their utility bills. And I saw a story about the the insane number of people who can't pay their electric and their water bills. I mean, all these things coming due. And meanwhile, because it's such a tremendously unequal recession where the top 20% is either completely unaffected or are actually doing better than they were before, the whole thing, all the pain is just like invisible to the people who have power. And so you have that layered on top of this incredibly fraught political moment where both sides feel like their literal lives are at stake in the election, like it is truly existential. And so the temperature is just turned up as hot as it possibly could be. And in that environment, you know, I really think we should be cutting each other as much slack as we possibly can, even for things that I think are petty or silly or wrong or bad takes or whatever. Like people are freaked out and they're depressed and they're sad and they're anxious and they're angry and they're fearful. And a lot of people are not at their best selves right now and not really thinking clearly about how we are going to be able to collectively move forward as a country. So, you know, I, my policy is basically to try to cut people slack (laughs) during this time and, you know, try to see the best. It's so hokey, but it's really true. Like try to see the best part of the person as annoying or obnoxious as they may be, especially our fellow citizens, not like, again, the elites, like the people who have screwed this whole thing up, fuck them. But But I get that it's a fraught time and I understand why people have these very visceral reactions to viewpoints and people articulating viewpoints that they find abhorrent. Like, I really do get that. I just think ultimately that direction of discourse is not going to get us anywhere, but more of where we are today, which is a very ugly place. Well, Lots of people are not at their, uh, at their best selves right now, but that was great. Thank you so much for coming on, Crystal. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. All right. Thanks. Bye. joined uh, by uh, Cole James Cash, uh, who is substituting today for the great David Griscom. Uh, can't be with us to do his usual segment, uh, but I am excited to, uh, to have Cole on. Um, he is, uh, among other things, uh, he, uh, he hosts uh, what I think is now just called the Cole James Cash Show, uh, and um, he also has another show in development at Means TV. Uh, not for nothing, uh, he, uh, for people who are, who are familiar with uh, Jesse Lee Peterson and uh, the uh, famous or infamous debate that I did with him, uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check out 
uh, Cole's encounter with Jesse, which I think lasted literally less than five minutes before Peterson uh, pulled the plug uh, because he's so used to being able to say uh, crazy things and, and, uh, and have people uh, just take it seriously and try to patiently explain whatever's wrong with the crazy thing that he said uh, and Cole didn't humor it. Uh, so that is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, but um, what we want to talk about today is actually his music uh, for, uh, for this usual music segment at the end of the show. And uh, if you're not aware of this, uh, constantly people are telling me how much they like the, uh, the intro music on the show. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a gift from Cole. So welcome, Cole. You know, what's funny is that um, Anna Kasparian messaged me today. And it was because I, I singled out the fact that Nico House is hanging out with like Jack Basobiec and all that. And I debated Nico House. And the, the, the story about that was, was Nico had disrespected Anna. So mm-hmm. Michael is like, yo, I got to jump in and defend, right? And then, you know, Michael, there's certain things he's not going to say. Right. You know, Michael's not going to say, yo, you trying to smash Tulsi Gabbard, and that's all there is to it, bro. You're an opportunist just like her. Michael's not going to say that. And believe, believe me, I'm being very judicious. I'm being very sure. civil. Sure. And also, in the word, in the, and to, to quote Patrice O'Neill, I had to get at Nico House in a very black way, you know, because he's used to, you know, you, Ben, you know how much I respect you, but there's certain things you can't, you know, Nico House is a, uh, a house Negro. You know it, but you can't say that. I can't. Oh, you can, yeah. And and so like he he proved that today and and Anna, you know, found a lot of joy in bringing this up because you know both of us was cool, Michael and Anna was like really happy just to hear that like, you know how that happened. She didn't know, you know. So I jumped in to you know not because I'm trying to be this you know, house Negro my stuff like oh my white master, my Michael. No, it's it's because Michael's my friend and I'm like nah man, this guy's used to going against other white folks who are going to be nice to him. He walks into a room of black folks talking, what are you talking about? That ain't going to fly. So I'm glad that we were proven right. I only wish Michael was here to see it, that we were right all along. Sorry I had to come with that intro, but I just thought you'd want to know that. Man. <laughs> yeah, I no, I, I, I appreciate that. I actually did also, uh, much more politely, uh, debate me yes. myself uh, during the primary about, uh, about Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, and, and that guy will just sit there and say with a straight face things that like literally like anybody watches the news knows aren't true. Can I just say this is that when you watch the first couple minutes of that debate with him, he had been posting on Reddit that he spoke Spanish fluently and that he spoke Portuguese. And I had this moment like an inglorious bastards where I said in Spanish, I told him you can, you can look at it, Ben, I'll send you the link, bro. I say in Spanish, I said something like, you know, how about we, you know, we can do part of the interview in Spanish since you're so fluent. Then he says like, oh, he said like, he said like, oh, oh something carioca, like basically implying that like, I speak Portuguese of Rio, like, Rio de Janeiro descent. And I said, oh, you know, I replied in Portuguese. I'm like, yeah, I speak Portuguese too, bro. Yo, holla at my mama. You know, and it's just like, he was just like shocked, bro. I pulled this card so quick, man. It yeah. was a glorious. Sorry, yeah, yeah, that, that's that scene where they're they're gonna go, uh, they're gonna pose as Italian journalists to go to the priest. Yes, and say, all right, well, you know, he speaks the most Italian. You know, speaks second. Well, you speak the third most Italian. You know, it's like, oh, uh, yeah. I don't speak Italian. Yeah, like I said, you speak the third most, and then they actually show up at the uh, at the party, and you know, Brad Pitt's doing the bonjourno. Yes. <laughs> 
yes. Yeah, Ben, like it was, it was a glorious moment. Like I said, I know the Jesse Lee Peterson, thank you for setting that up for me. That's what they get for bothering you. Um, like the wolf, I came in and solved the problem, bro. Go ahead, Ben. It's your show, <laughs> yeah, man. I'm all, right. Right. all right. Two, two Tarantino references uh, in a row. I like it. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, although the, uh, the movie that I was thinking of with that, cause so just to set this up, well, aren't familiar with this. I, I did this, this debate with, um, uh, with with Jesse Lee Peterson, which which is one of the most bizarre conversations I've ever been in my life, and then uh, then after um, afterwards, uh, Peterson's producer, uh, you know, kept like sending me messages. Oh, is there some other like leftist you can suggest you want to come on to argue uh, with uh, with Jesse? And so suggesting Cole for that was kind of in the same spirit of if you've ever uh, if you've ever seen uh, Goodwill Hunting, there's a scene in there where he, there's like an interview he doesn't want to go to. And uh, he says he sends he's going to send his representative. So uh, so you know watch that sometime. Know what I'm yes. talking about. Uh, but uh, but I want to uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, and and talk about uh, your musical career. So you want to uh, you want to set this up for us a little bit? Talk about the kind of thing you usually do. So um, yeah, this is you know we're going to talk about um, 2016. Um, it was an album that I made at the time I was recovering from a shooting slash robbery that happened to me. And um, it was a really tough time because you understand, like I went through like drug rehab and like fixed my life only to basically by chance. I'm, I'm from, I'm from Oakland and it just happened while walking to work, man. It was a, it was a crime of chance, you know? And I started working on this album 2016 because um, I started to, when Trump had won, it was kind of whatever to me. But not because politics doesn't affect me. I'm just like, you know, I have low expectations of white people, man. So, you know, unless you vetted like my man, Ben, man, like I'm not really rocking with you like that. But it was when I began to realize that a lot of white folks started feeling themselves. And my boy who's Asian, he got a note that said that, you know, it was a racial slur and everything. He's like, yo, this just happened to me. I'm like, and he lives in a town called Morgan Hill, which is near Gilroy, San Jose. And so I started working on this, this, this album that would sort of reflect um, how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And I covered everything from, um, you know, um, back page getting uh, removed. Um, you know, I covered Standing Rock. I covered, uh, you know, a song called Deplorable, a song called Grabbing by the Poverty. Don't cheat on your girl because I had actually ruined my relationship because I was caught cheating. Um, and it was just, it was just all kinds of, you know, it was called all, all kinds of stuff that I had covered but they shut down Backpage was a big one to me because um, I know a lot of sex workers and I'm, I'm friends with, you know, some, some adult, as, as Seinfeld would say, public fornicators, you know, like, like, you know, and them shutting down Backpage just, it just, it, it caused a lot more problems than, than it helped. And I couldn't stand Kamala Harris at that point because I was like, dude, you already had this crappy policy and this and that. So I'm from California, so my Kamala dislike has been going on for a while, and I covered that on that album. And like I said, the song called "Gentrified Cheesesteaks," and it's just it was just like something that reflected how I I felt at the time. I don't rap or sing, so I have to do everything instrumentally if I don't have rappers or singers. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So let me uh, let me just play uh, one track from that album right now. Uh, so this is one that is called. Uh, the president-elect. My favorite song on there, right? Easily. Mm-hmm. 
everyone who voted for Trump is a racist, but every racist voted for Trump. It's not okay to rip someone's hijab off and tell them to go home. It's not okay to write die faggot on a homosexual couple's car. That's not okay. We're not going to stand for that, and love will triumph over all. I, I don't condone violence, but I'm not going to speak out against people who have been oppressed to the point where they feel that they need to commit violence. I have no problem with that. got me uh i i just you know listen to that like that really uh i get a little knot in my stomach you know because i think about like when when uh when he was first elected and uh i remember i was i was talking to uh, my wife jennifer about it and she was she was like the whole day she's like god it feels like somebody just died yeah it, for for me it was you know i always viewed america as i'm like this is just what it is this is there is no mass but my problem was was that people felt emboldened to you know those those quotes were actually canadian you know and and i liked what they, what they were saying you know and the thing is is that like i said those quotes were exactly what i was feeling at the time like oh you know and and and, and it just it was I know for uh, my kid's mom, we were still kind of together at the time and she's not a citizen, you know, big shout out to Ronald Reagan, who is her lawyer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also shout out to Ronald Reagan for winning asylum for one of her gay friends from Venezuela, man. He did it, you know? So, so Anyhow, just, just, just to, just to be clear, cause I think some people might. Oh, my bad. Stephen Robbins, immigration lawyer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great guy. He lives out in Washington, but yeah, so basically, like, it was how I was feeling. I, I basically got to talk about everything I was feeling, you know. Um, um, one, thing, one thing that's kind of funny is that there was a, there's actually, um, there's a song called um, Marriage on there. And you got to understand, like, don't get me wrong, like, I, I was still watching TYT, like, extensively, and I knew who Sam was and stuff, but I wasn't online like that, you know. So I had actually pulled some quotes from Paul Joseph Watson and I didn't know who he was. And he's talking about like, yo, women ain't trying to get married, man. They ain't trying to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that sounds interesting. I'm just whatever. And then when I found out who he was, 
like six months later, I'm like, yo, I'm deleting the hell out of that. Paul Joseph Watson is one of those guys that he'll be like semi-reasonable and then he'll just go into some um, dumb stuff. Ben, I'm trying to censor myself, bro. And like, so it's just like that, you know, yeah, it was just everything about that album was just what I was feeling. Like I said, a song called Make Ends Meet, you know, but, and like I said, Standing Rock was a big deal to me. Like, you know, I made it at the time, you know, and, and that was what I was feeling at the time, relearning to walk and things like that. And um, like I said, I, I, I really, really yeah, enjoyed this. Because you really, like in that, I've heard you talk about that incident before, you know, when uh, like, like you really had some severe injuries. Yes. Um, I was beaten so badly in my head. I was pistol whipped repeatedly that I had a hematoma in the back of my head, which is a, like a big blood clot. They thought I got shot in the back of the head, but I was shot twice in the leg. They weren't aiming for my leg. You know, they were not aiming for my leg. And they grabbed my work computer and my Xbox One at the time. Um, I want to give a big shout out to um, one of my fans because I said I was a musician before any of this. Um, oh, and I should introduce myself as Means TV um, signee called James Cash. Like before I got any of this cool stuff going, before Sam Cedar became my dad, um, I was a musician and I'm well documented in talking about activism. You can find you know interviews of me talking about it and talking about the importance of fatherhood and activism and things like that. Um, I've always, I've often find this been that like, yo, I've been empathetic to communism and I knew, you know, socialism through black, black nationalism, mm -hmm. guys like Fred Hampton. I've known that most of my life, yeah. but it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. It's what you do right. because you know, Ben, I'm not, I don't punch left. Right. I don't spend my time, slapping liberals um because i have liberals in my family and liberals in my philosophy years those are the people we're going to convert if, at some point they're the ones that are actually going to listen and i just prefer to try to because i when you go door to door a lot you know damn well that you don't talk like you like you tweet i don't like to be a reactionary you know i like to focus on what can people do? My show, now the Cole James Cash show because Nick and Naomi from Means, they own Ghetto News Network now. I just like to focus on actionable stuff. It's like you, you have, you know, your book, you know, the book, give them an argument. I'm like, yo, this is what I can use to explain to people these types of right wing things that they say this and that, blah, 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 like actionable stuff. And that's what's most important for me. As you, you specialize in, yo, there's an intellectual left that is fooled by guys like Ben Shapiro and things like that. In all honesty, Ben, people you relate to, your folks, you know, some nerdy folks, a lot of nerdy white folks, etc. Yo, you take care of them for real, man. You take care of them. So I do my best to take care of my folks and in, in what I do. And Michael, he tried to bring everybody together. It's because of him we even are cool with each other. You know, it was because of him we are even cool with each other. And, and I get really sad thinking about it because he never got to see me get signed. He never got to see me get elevated to the position that he wanted me to be in. Yeah, no, I mean, every... Um every day right you know like i think like especially now that i'm doing the show right like you know three times a day right some days like you know like I, I i feel that itch to like text him about what's going on with it you know so um yeah why don't uh but no that that's great i'm i'm really happy for you that you did get that means tv deal um, thank you do you want to because uh, i saw you post about this a little while ago uh just just to kind of wrap up here do you want to um talk a little bit about what you see coming up as far as the, the musical side of your career? Um, let's see, like, you know, honesty, I, you know, what's funny is that, you know, Napoleon, the legend, right? 
Oh, yeah. Yep. Me and him go back seven years, bro. Really? Like, I always explain to people, one of the biggest reasons you can't, like, cancel people in, in you know, in entertainment, because we all fucking, I mean, we all know each other. Yeah. You know, like, everybody knows each other. You know, it's like, Jason knows some folks, et cetera. Like, in New York, like, I know a lot of rappers, bro. And Napoleon's one of them. He knows my homies. You know, I got family in NYC and all that. It's like, we all know each other. So he contacted me. He's like, yo, I didn't know you was down with this. I'm like, yeah, bro. Good to see you, Kareem, man. What's up with you? You know, and and, and it's like, it's such a, like, we're, we're, we're entertainers first. And the thing is, is what I will say is, like I said, as far as music goes, I have an uh, EP called Comrade Britney that he and my boy Lex is on. And in it, I basically take Britney Spears, like, interviews, and I elevate her, you know, Basically, I've always been empathetic to Britney Spears. She's never done anything to anyone. And I never liked how, like, her mental issues were made to be like, it was like she was going crazy. But, bro, she was just going through it, you know? And, uh, yeah, I have that. And then I actually have an album called um, Lush Life, based after the novel from Richard Price, my Mm. favorite author. Richard Price, there's two writers, white writers I love. Richard Price, David Simon, and one more, Brian Azzarello, who writes uh, um, comics, it's because they yeah, know how to write stuff by Dwight Israel. Yeah, yeah, but One Hundred Bullets is my favorite comic book, one of my favorite books ever. And I, they're the only white folks I truly trust to write black people, man. Fair you know, like <laughs> Richard Price is good, and he knows our folks, and he knows cops too. You know, he knows how these individuals operate. So I named my album Lush Life because that mo- that book is about a shooting. You know, it's about a shooting and things like that, and that's like my album dedicated to what happened to me. And but in, in it, I took pieces from the book. I basically scored a book. You know, there's like three rap songs and one uh, ballad. But I scored a book, and I sort of channeled that to like kind of help me get over get over the shooting. And um, it's just like you know that 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 will be coming out by the end of the year. But Comrade Brittany will be out in about a month, so I'm very excited about that. And um, the last one, um, the album that put me on the map was an album called BBW, a pornographic opera, where I spotlighted some of my homies that are public fornicators and they want to appear on the album. I'm very close to one. Her name's Casey Parker. Um, I'm doing a second one with just four songs and four girls named. We all homies. And that's that. That will be coming out probably around January. And yeah, and, and you know, until then I'm just, you know, concentrating on the production, um, the production meetings with means. And it's the show with me and my homegirl, Dahlia St. Knives. I'll just tell you right now, Ben, you know, I am a unapologetic scumbag. But I'm always respectful, man. I don't clean up my language, but I don't look to offend. You know, like you don't have to be you don't have to be a jerk to people. You don't have to misgender people on purpose, things like that. But on the other hand, I could still speak within the bounds of my community so people know, like, yo, you talking to one of your own is good. But when I'm on this show, man, you know, I, I clean up. I clean up very well. Um, I think I did very good. And shout out to you, man, for oh, for for the last time you came on my show, man. You talked about reading a Ben Shapiro books, man. <laughs> Yo, hold up, Ben. Before you go, isn't it funny how these dudes like they want so badly to get into this world, so they yeah. have to astroturf. They what I mean by the they want to get in entertainment. Guys like Brian yeah. Kilmeade. I had an agent once. I think yeah, from CCA. Like I'm not I'm not that clout, but I know I do know a guy. You know, and he was telling me yo like yo these dudes badly want to get in and they can't because nobody likes them. You know, nobody likes them, and it's like yo like. These guys badly want to be in that liberal world. And when they can't get in, they like try to say this and that and the other or whatever. But Ben, you know this, man. Those right wingers 
are desperately trying to get into the liberal media that they say they dislike. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of that. Um, thank you so much, Cole. This is really good. Yo, no problem. Ben, it's really good to see you, man. Absolutely. Really good to see you. And don't forget my message. I texted you the other day, man. I'm really glad that you're here, man. I know it's been tough the last seven months, eight months, but I'm glad you're here, man. All right, Ben. Much love to you and your wife, man. Bye. Thanks. Next week, uh, we are going to be back uh, with uh, with David Griscom for a very extended uh, version of Outlaws and Revolutionaries because we are going to be interviewing uh, Matthew Sitman, uh, who is uh, one of the two co-hosts of the Know Your Enemy podcast, which is a really interesting uh, podcast by leftists talking about uh, the right. Um, and uh, in particular, so I'm going to be uh, talking to Sitman about, um, well, first of all, at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to be talking to uh, my good friend and comrade and frequent co-author Matt McManus about a article that he wrote for Jacobin about the relationship between uh, liberalism and socialism. It got a lot of people mad. Uh, so I think there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, we are uh, we are also uh, going to um, then Matt is going to be sticking around for the first half hour of the interview uh, with uh, the other Matt, Matt's Matthew Sitman, uh, to talk about the Know Your Enemy podcast. And then at the halfway mark of the show, David Griscom, who's going to be back next week, is going to come back to help me interview Matthew Sitman about an article that he wrote for Dissent uh, about country music and leftism. So that is an episode that I'm really looking forward to. I will see you all then. Left is best.